really, um, it's really great to be with you this morning. I'm excited to, uh, to jump in uh, on a series called On Second Thought, On Second Thought, and the title for this week's message is It's Not About Me. On Second Thought, It's Not About Me. So in September, uh, we began a journey through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we covered the first six chapters with a series called uh, Consider the Source. And so if you were around, you, you know about that. Uh, we then took a break from 1 Corinthians uh, to do our Advent series called Light Arriving. And um, we just concluded that last week. And so uh, this week, as we begin this new series, we're picking up on 1 Corinthians where we left off. So we're picking up 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, we're going to be talking about the, the first part of that. And to give some background and context, if you haven't been with us for the journey, uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth and uh, a church in Corinth that he actually started, and uh, he heard some things that were happening in the church. He wrote them a letter. They responded to that letter, and what First Corinthians is, is a letter back to them. So we don't have that first original letter. This is actually uh, the second letter Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and what we see in the first part of, um, of the book, we see a transition right now at chapter 7 going on through... Uh, chapter 11, actually, the first verse of chapter 11. So from 7 through 11, the beginning of 11, uh, we see Paul responding to the questions that they, in fact, asked. And so uh, that's kind of where we're leaning in this week is where uh, he's starting to address some of the questions they asked. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 1, going on through verse 7. You can follow along on the screens, or if you have the app, you can follow along there as well. It says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so it's responding, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to her wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, and one of another. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You're like, oh my gosh. So chapter seven, that's an interesting topic, right? Outstanding. And so one of the things that we've committed to here is uh, communicating the text uh, and keeping the integrity of the text. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this um, passage. And for those of you that have been with us uh, for any amount of time, you realize that the kids go through the same content as we do. And so some of you might be kind of squirming like, oh my gosh, what are they telling my kids right now? We're telling them everything. No, I'm just joking. Um, they, are, they are focusing on verse 7 this morning, and uh, they are focusing on the topic of it not being about me and the reality of selfishness and the dynamic there. So kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, they are staying true to the text, but they won't be talking about some of what it is that we will be talking about. Um, I... Uh, as I, as I looked at this uh, text, I considered a lot of different times that I was selfish. 
in fact, both times in my life. Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> it was amazing, the, uh, the lists of examples of times that I was selfish, just like horrifying things that I have done throughout my life. I remember one time in particular uh, where uh, I have two sisters. I have one older and one younger. I'm the only uh, boy in my family, and I'm a middle child, so some of you understand why I have ended up as jacked up as I have. Um, but in, in either case, um, when I was uh, in high school, it had kind of gotten to that point where I was uh, strong enough to not be beaten by them anymore, uh, unless they strategically ganged up on me, in which case there's some other stories we can get into. But um, I, was, uh, I was kind of a little bit intimidating at that point to them, and so uh, they resorted to threats or throwing things. And uh, there was this one time in particular that I was aware of my younger sister just looking at me so intently and being like, you are so selfish. You know, I was like, whoa, you sound like Lucifer. Um, but uh, not that I've ever heard Lucifer, but I think it will sound like my sister. Uh, by all means, spread the word. Um, in either case, uh, we, were, we had gotten into an argument and we're in the dining room and uh, we're in the dining room, my parents' home, and we're kind of yelling and screaming about something I'm sure was completely inconsequential. Uh, but at the moment, it was like paramount, like we are furious, it's time to do battle here. And uh, we're well past the age of physical altercations. And, uh, and so I'm literally kind of like, what are you going to do to me? You know, like, come on, deal with it, basically. And so in a fit of rage and fury, um, my younger sister uh, grabs a D battery, Okay, so the largest battery you can wrap your hand around. I don't know if she was doing something with it or if she just carried them around like some creepy gangster. I'm not sure what. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to beat you with some batteries now. But in either case, she pulled out this D battery and it, with full force, she hauled off and whipped this battery at me. And as it's coming towards me in a very close uh, environment, I ducked to the right and I re still remember hearing the crash of my mother's china cabinet behind me. And this D battery flew through the glass. Uh, she had this very nice china cabinet with very nice, for a while, uh, dishes in there. And this D battery flew right there, just smashed it, smashed the dishes. And I looked at her and said, I can't believe you did that. And she looked at me and said, you are so selfish. And I was like, what? And she's like, why did you just, why did you get out of the way? Why did I get out of the way? Because you whipped a D battery at my skull. Are you kidding me right now? She's like, that's ridiculous. Look at what happened because you moved out of the way. I was like, yeah, I should have taken one for the team. Right, Jenny, I stand corrected. My bad. Next time you whip a D battery at me, I'll take one right in the face, you know? And uh, it was kind of this moment where I was blown away that she equated this moment to selfishness. And I was thinking, how ironic. You're actually the selfish one now because you're going to reap the consequences of your actions. And so selfishness oftentimes is in the eye of the beholder, right? Isn't it interesting that we can declare others being selfish when they're really looking out uh, for their own safety? And so we know that that's not necessarily a selfish act, and yet it feels selfish, especially if we're being selfish. And there's all these variables of just straight-up selfish acts. If you fast forward, I'd love to tell you that, um, you know, that now I take batteries to the face, uh, but I don't. I still duck out of the way, and um, I still 
remain rather selfish in unique ways. Uh, as a parent, I find this extremely evident in a profound and embarrassing way, which I'd love to share. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny, as, as kids get older, they're like, their radar to desire the things we want is unbelievable. Let me explain. If you have children, anything that you want to eat that you like, they want it. By some weird, like, they won't want to eat anything ever. No, 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 I don't want that for dinner. I don't want that for dinner. Till you have something you like and they're like, that's what I want. I would like that. They have this other uncanny ability. I have three children. I'll be in the other room and uh, I'll be like, hey kids, hey guys, hey, nothing, nothing, nothing. We didn't hear you. Wow, we didn't hear you. But I go to unwrap something that I want to eat and all of a sudden I turn around and like three little monsters, they're like, what are you eating? Is that for me? I'm like, how did you hear the unwrapping of this candy bar? Like, I don't know. It's just, can I try it? That looks really good. Yeah, it's amazing because it is really good and no, you can't have any. I love you, but this is for daddy. And so it just, it ramps up. I, I knew that we were at an all-time low when, how many of you guys, I know we all like, I mean, unless you need counseling, we all like uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody loves them. If you don't love a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, that's un-American. I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm not sure. But in either case, we, we all love them. Now, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups has like a crack version where it's like, it, it's literally, you can't control yourself. You have to eat as many as you can. And it's when they come out with the eggs for Easter time, right? I don't know what they do to those kind. And I know they're just shaped like an egg, but they're better. I don't know why. Like, they're like, oh, let's make our normal Reese's peanut butter cups. Let's put crack in those. Like, I don't know what they do, but we just eat them like unashamed fat kids. I don't know. Like, we just want to slam it in our face, and we don't even care. Like, it's making me heavy. More, more, more. And um, so we get those, and every year our kids want them. And uh, I knew we had hit an all-time low when me and my wife conspired unashamedly to hide them from our children. We bought them for our family, and then when we got home, it was like we looked at each other, we're like, we're not sharing. <laughs> and we hid them. We hid them. Selfishness. It is absolutely unbelievable, unparalleled. It doesn't stop. It's who we are. And so I have a question for you this morning. Why is it so difficult to be selfless? Why is it so difficult to be selfless? I want to submit to you this morning, it's because at our core, we are all selfish. And I understand that if you're in the room this morning and you believe in that, that we're all at our core are good, then I want to submit to you that maybe you don't understand the depths of your own broken nature and the depths of our broken nature as humanity. You see, we don't like it about ourselves. In fact, maybe some of you don't want to admit how selfish you are. You come up with reasons like maybe the other person shouldn't have ducked before you whipped the battery at them. <laughs> or if you're like a lot of people in society today, you just joke about being selfish in hopes that everybody just kind of laughs about it. Like if I can make it a joke, then nobody can look at me in a condescending way. You could just be so like, I know I'm selfish, right? <laughs> it's all mine. Everybody's like, <laughs> you are. We joke about it and we, we hope that 
everybody can laugh instead of acknowledging the fact that at our core, we really are concerned only about ourselves. None of us are excluded from this human condition. There's nobody in the room that can say like, no, no, all I care about is others. As I typically say, I realize that there are a lot of different types of people in the room, and I know that we're all at varying levels of spiritual engagement. I know that there's people in the room this morning that are entire skeptics, that aren't sure about this whole God thing, and if God is even real. And everybody in between, right up to the person that would consider themselves a faithful Christ follower. So I understand the dynamic of the difference of opinions and spiritual perspectives of people in the room, but the fact is this, we're all human, and at our core, we are selfish. When given the opportunity, we'll look out for number one. It's part of the reason why when you board an airplane, they tell you, listen, put the air on yourself first. It's because they know you're gonna. They just want to make you feel better about it. (laughs) Face value. You might be tempted to look at this text and read this this morning and kind of conclude that this is about marriage and sexual intimacy. And although you'd be right, uh, there's something foundational that's applicable to everybody in this room. And so this morning, if you're married or not married, if you're divorced or if you're widowed, regardless of your role, if you're single, if you've never been married, this text has implication in your life. And so you're just going to have to Believe me for a moment as I kind of develop the obviousness of the text in the sense that it does deal with marriage. And so before I dig into the application, we need to consider the text in context. And so we need to understand some things about marriage at that time and why it is that Paul is writing what he's writing. Uh, Roman marriages in in Corinth was uh, a Roman colony, and so we're dealing with a Roman environment. Roman marriages were arranged by families to enhance status and wealth. End of story. Uh, Marriage was not about intimacy. It wasn't about uh, joining together even for uh, sexual pleasure. There There was no reality of that in that society. In that society, if you wanted some type of sexual activity, it was rampant everywhere. In parties, in orgies, in uh, even at the temple, you could purchase what was called temple prostitutes. And so we're living in a very secularized uh, society when we look back at the church in Corinth. Uh, It wasn't for uh, monogamy or anything like that. The only reason to marry was to enhance status, wealth, or procreation. That was it. Husbands were typically significantly older, and they basically purchased their wife. In order to to validate the marriage, if you can kind of understand a little glimpse into this, what was required in that society was that you would have five adult Roman citizens in order to validate the marriage. Because one of the things that ran rampant in that Roman colony was that there would just be an older man that would say, yeah, you know what, she's my wife. And then they would just declare ownership over her. And so to basically stop the, uh, the kidnapping of younger women they said, listen, you need at least five witnesses to validate that this was an aboard, uh, an uh, up-and-up transaction. It's kind of unbelievable in our mind. I think so often we get to a place where we say, oh, society is degrading, look at what we've come to, and we come to this place, but we don't realize really how far we've come and what 
um, the church at Corinth, but even the society, the Corinthian society, actually looked like. The sexism that took place, um, the horrifying things that happened in that society. In fact, just so you can understand a little bit further and wrap your mind around what this idea of marriage based on the Corinthian values looked like, divorce occurred when a man told a woman to leave their house. That's what divorce looked like. Woman had no ability to divorce a man. So basically at any given point when the man felt that he had enough children or if he had frustrations with his wife or whatever that looked like, he could just say, you know what, you can leave. And so he would write her a letter of uh, divorce, essentially. And so he had the authority to just remove this woman from his life the same way that she came in. So again, marriage took place for the purpose of improving status, wealth, or procreation. That's it. Selfish reasons. It's about me. I want to do better for my family or I want to do uh, better for us financially. And so uh, parents of younger women would look at them and say, listen, this is good for the family. You should marry that wealthier man. And they would make a deal. Sometimes she was informed, sometimes she wasn't. Horrifying, right? We can't even wrap our minds around the reality of that in our society today. And so we look at verse one, and Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Okay, so that's where this transition is happening, where he's now talking about the questions that they asked. And then he says this, and it's in quotations in the original uh, text. It's obvious that he's not declaring this. He's, He's saying this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's actually referring to a Corinthian slogan. Okay, so that was a Corinthian slogan of the time. And and it's connected to one of the questions that they must have asked. So he's saying, concerning the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There were, in this society, it was very stoic. It was a philosopher's age. And so there was this idea that if you engaged in the physical activities of sexuality and marriage, that it would somehow cloud your mind, that it was a lesser plane of engaging your human urges. And the higher plane was to be intellectually engaged and to to be a philosopher. And so as a result, the intellectuals of Corinth would say, listen, you don't need to marry. If you really have to give in uh, to your physical desires, then just go uh, purchase a prostitute or do whatever it is you have to do. But we're really above that. And so that's seeping into the church in Corinth. But it's seeping into the church in Corinth in a different way. They're not saying we're too intelligent to do it. They're saying we're too spiritual to do that. That, that to, to engage in intimacy of that level is actually uh, below us. We wouldn't involve ourselves in that stuff. And so Paul's response in verse 2, he says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. You see, he says, if you're as spiritual as you say you are, then you'd realize that sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is not only a good thing, but it's an anecdote to promiscuity. And so, in this secular society, in this sexualized society. He's saying, listen, if you really want to engage and go against uh, the temptations of the culture you live in, then one of the ways you come against that is to engage in a level of intimacy with your spouse. Now, I've been a a pastor for 20 years. We've been in ministry, full-time ministry for for 20 years now. And uh, 
there's several couples that have sat across, I don't even know how many sat across me and talked about some of the issues that they've had in marriage. And, um, and as they're sitting across the table, uh, inevitably one of the things that I will ask is I'll say, just so I can understand the current situation, you guys are being transparent about a lot of things, and so you'll have to forgive me for, for prying here, but just so I can understand, when was the last time you were intimate with one another? I don't need details. I just want to know, when was the last time that, that you guys were engaged in a level of intimacy? And it's amazing. I ask the question not because I want to know the answer. It's kind of a creepy question, honestly. I ask the question because I want them to reflect on the reality that oftentimes they can't even remember. There's a silence, and they kind of look at each other and like, well, uh, I'm not sure. And the reason I ask the question is because I want to let them know at some point they allowed the busyness of life, an unresolved hurt, something that they couldn't get over to begin to bring a wedge between the two of them in their level of intimacy. Now, if you're married, you know that you can't be like, I'm so angry at you, I hate you. You want to go have a little fun? (laughs) Like, no, I want you dead, (laughs) right? (laughs) Great idea, you know. It doesn't work that way. And, and so what happens in the moment of argument, in the moment of disagreement, is there's, there's a fracture in the intimacy. And, and the way that we were created, when we were married, we became one. The two flesh became one. And so in the moments of disagreement and argument, it becomes a fractured relationship. And some of the way that we heal that relationship is to engage in a level of intimacy. And what's required for that level of intimacy is a healing conversation to overcome the difference that you have. Now, unless you're in an abusive relationship and things like that, and I'm, I'm not speaking to those things. I'm, I'm talking about a, a stereotypical average relationship where there's a difficulty or an issue. You see, the word of God is pretty clear. The intimacy, specifically what Paul is talking about here between a husband and wife looks like the idea of spiritual warfare that there's actually a spiritual element where the enemy, uh, where Satan will begin to tempt one of those spouses. And you might, you might say, well, I, I don't really care about the physical act, you know? I'm beyond that or whatever. It's amazing how um, very few fractured relationships that end in a divorce begin with um, a sexual attraction. It starts oftentimes with an emotional connection, an emotional affair. You're broken, you're angry, and all of a sudden someone understands you so well he listens. So meaningful. He really cares. It, it's what happens is when there's this fracture and all of a sudden someone can speak into the intimate connection of our lives, we begin to feel this separation. Some people would say this morning that, well, you know, we have, a, we have an understanding. I mean, we've, you know, we just, we don't need to do that all the time. I mean, you know. We're beyond that. We really love each other. You know, we're old. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I've heard all of these different bizarre statements about agreements or about uh, things that make sense. And all that Paul is really saying is you're fooling yourself. That intimacy is something that God designed not only for procreation and pleasure, but for spiritual warfare. So, 
Now some married people maybe are a little happy that they're here like, oh, all right, yeah, let's do some spiritual warfare. (laughs) I don't want you to miss what's happening here because what's happening here is deeper than what we're even talking about. What's happening in verses three through four, he goes on and he says this. He says, the husbands should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. I dare you to use that language. (laughs) Give me my conjugal rights. That would be hilarious. Anyway, sorry. I digress. The, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Something profound is taking place in the text right here. And if you're not careful, you won't see it. You see, you have to understand the context of the culture that I set up in the beginning. It's highly sexist, and women, again, for all lack of uh, better words, are property in this society. But Paul is saying something amazingly profound. The husband, he starts verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. This was a revolutionary statement. Wait, what? She has rights? I don't understand. Paul, what are you talking about? Paul, scripture, Jesus, God, elevates the role of women far more than our modern society can do at their best attempts. Paul is saying, listen, husbands don't own their wives. This is a mutual relationship. In fact, when he goes on, he says, so the husband should give to his wife and likewise the husband to her. And then he starts verse four, he says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. They're like, but the husband does. They're like, okay, I'm with you again, Paul. I like it. Then it goes on and says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Unheard of. Unheard of. What Paul is talking about here is equality and mutual uh, respect in a way that is so profound the church in Corinth can barely comprehend it. So they're one in God's eyes. When we marry, we are one, but we belong to the other. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Isn't that interesting? You see, because the church in Corinth was treating marriage like a contract. See, contracts say, hey, you know what? I'm going to benefit from this. And so therefore, I'll, I'll pay the agreed upon amount. We have witnesses to make this a legal transaction. She's now mine. And Paul is saying, no, it's not a contract. It's a covenant. You see, contracts you can find loopholes in. Contracts you can cancel. If a contract is not beneficial to you, you can question it. You can ask friends if it's fair. Isn't that interesting? Some of our marriages might sound more like a contractual relationship rather than a covenant. This doesn't seem fair, right? Again, I'm not talking about situations of abuse or the horrifying things that have happened to a lot of you, I assume. For all of you not married in this room, you may have thought that I lied when I said... (laughs) It's applicable to all of us. But I'm about to connect the dots right here. You see, a covenant is different 
when individu- as individuals, so all of our marital status aside, as individuals, we approach life selfishly. So it stands to reason that we'd approach God the same way. We wrongly consider what we may have to give up, what it is that we may have to stop doing, And so we carefully read over what we think is a contract between us and God. In fact, we we look over the details of this thing called spirituality or this thing called religion. And we say, this is a contract I'm not sure I'm willing to sign. I don't know that that God, if he's even real, is going to deliver on his end of the contract. And quite frankly, when I look at this contract, I'm confident I can't deliver on my end. I'm way too broken. I'm way too much of a mess. I can't believe you signed that contract. But it's not until you, me, we realize that Jesus is inviting us into a covenant relationship, not a contract, that we can start to realize that this isn't about doing stuff to fulfill some level of spirituality. It's about being in a relationship. You see, It's not a contract. On second thought, it's not about me at all. And so if you've gotten to a place in your life where you're willing to consider that maybe, just maybe, it doesn't have to be about you. It doesn't have to be about what you can get out of every relationship, married or not, friendship, job, you name it. Have you come to a place where you've come to the end of yourself? Listen, the truth of the gospel has to transform us individually before it can impact our relationships and our marriages. So is this text about marriage? Obviously. But beneath this text is this struggle in this dynamic of desiring to be for ourselves. Desiring to to claim what it is that is owed us. What it is that we shouldn't have to surrender. The areas of our lives that we don't have to be vulnerable in, according to us. And yet, the truth of the gospel plays out this beautiful picture. Where Jesus says, as broken as you are, as imperfect as you are, I will lay down my life. I'll fulfill the part of a covenant, not a contract, that you could never fulfill on your own. You see, covenants are often sealed with blood. If you can understand an Old Testament covenant, covenant, when there was an agreement that was made, an animal was cut right down the middle. They were split. It was a very morbid scene. They would spread the animal open, and the two people making the agreement would walk down the center over the blood, And they would say, if I break this covenant, would the same happen to me that's happened to that animal? That's how legit it was. That's how real it was. And so we see this amazing picture of Jesus going to the cross after he has lived the perfect life that we could never live on our own. He follows all the rules. And he goes up and lays down his life, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood. And he says, I will pay the price so that you can walk in freedom. 
And all you have to do is agree to walk in a covenant relationship with me. And it's not about following the rules because when you break the rules, because we know you will, I've already paid the price. My body was broken. My life was lost. My blood was shed. And so this morning, married or not, individuals in this room have to come face to face with whether or not they're willing to walk in a covenant relationship with God. And if you're willing to walk into a covenant relationship with God, it will transform every relationship you enter into. The transformative work of the gospel has to begin with you before it can ever impact any relationship. You see, left to our own vices, we always look out for number one. And so we could sit here this morning and say, listen, if you're married, stop being selfish. Stop it. Try harder. Be a better spout. Come on behave. And you'd be like, you know what? I'm going to be. I can do this until you don't. Until you find yourself at 11 o'clock at night hiding eggs from your kids (laughs) and like little trash junkies ripping open the wrapper and wolfing down some peanut butter cups. And you're like, maybe it is all about me. (laughs) Because at our core, we are not selfless. There was only one that was selfless. He died for you and for me so that we can walk in the freedom and so that we can remind ourselves when we try to grab onto our rights, when we try to declare what is for us, what benefits us, that we would be so transformed by that which Christ has done for us that we're able to say, I need to consider how this impacts others. That's what it is to be a Christ follower. It's not about church attendance. It's about loving other people. It's about coming to a place where the love of God has impacted us so deeply and wrecked us so immensely that we're able to look at the world through an entirely different lens. That's why I always say the the text requires something from us. And like I said, at face value, you may be sitting here as as a single person, as a widow, as a divorcee, and you might be saying, this text I'm not sure that it means anything to me. It's about marriage, right? But on second thought, it's not. It's about something very foundational to every single one of us. So the question I want you to to leave this place this morning considering and to maybe ponder as we go into a time of worship in a couple moments is this. How can I honor God with my marriage or my singleness this week? What does it look like to honor God with my marriage? What does it look like to honor God with my singleness this week? Maybe for some of you this morning, this conversation has to start with an interaction with the truth of the gospel to say, the best way I can honor God is to surrender my life to him. To simply say, listen, I need you to be the Lord and leader of my life. God, will you, will, will you Forgive me of my sins and come and be the Lord and leader of my life. Maybe for some of you this morning, that's your application. It's to maybe surrender self. For others of you, I have specific challenges. I didn't give this scripture to be projected because I want you to either write it down or willingly blow me off. (laughs) So if you don't write it down, then you're saying, I am choosing not to take this challenge. I'm cool with that, but I don't want to put it up on the screen and have you be like, mm, we're going to do that, praise God, <laughs> then not do it. So here's the deal. If you're a married couple in this room, I want to challenge you to read Ephesians 5, 29 through 33. 
I'm going to read it to you right now. Like I said, I'm not going to have it projected. Because I want you to consider the implications of this text. And I want it to lead some of your conversations. 5, 29 through 33 says this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. We're selfish, right? Just, this is the catch, just as Jesus does the church. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then it goes on. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the challenge is this. I want you to read those scriptures together and say, listen, how can I honor God with my marriage? According to this text, it looks like loving your wife. And so maybe one of the questions you need to ask your, your wife this week is, do I love you well? Be ready for the answer. Do I love you well? Do you feel loved? As we enter into 2019, we make all these ridiculous New Year's resolutions. But what about a commitment to honoring God through our marriage or through our singleness? And so for those of you in the room that, that read this text, as, as husbands look and say, listen, do I love you well? I want to challenge you wives to look according to this text. It says in wives, see that she respects her husband. I want you to ask your husband, do, do you feel like I respect you? And then be ready for the answer. <laughs> you see, Christ loves the church. He laid down his life. It's a model. It's a picture of a covenant relationship. It's a picture of marriage. It's why he calls himself the bride, calls us the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. There's, there's a ton of implications here. I could spend a whole month on all of the implications scripturally of what we're talking about. But singles, you don't get off so easy. You have something to consider as well. A challenge to write down and contemplate. It's, uh, it's actually in 1 Corinthians. We just ended it in the, in the end of our last series. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 says this. I'll read it, but you can write it down if you're willing to take the challenge here. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Listen to this. You are not your own. Verse 20. For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, as much as we talked about chapter 6 before, you don't see the connection so much until you read chapter 7 and you realize Paul's making a reference to the society that they lived in. And he's saying, if you're the bride of Christ, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price, but the price was Jesus's sacrifice. And that covenant relationship is one of love 
not of ownership. And so will you lean into the relationship? So as singles, I want to challenge you to consider whether it's in journal or to yourself, how are you treating your body? How are you treating your body? Are you honoring God with your singleness? I don't know the implications of that no more than I know the implications of the questions I ask the married people in the room. But everybody in this room has to walk away with something to wrestle with. Otherwise, we just had a cute little church service. I got better things to do with my time. <laughs> right? We have to have an encounter with the living God and, and consider the implications so that we live differently, so that other people realize, like, wait a second, they have a hope and a peace and they love me even though I'm unlovable. And the way that that happens is when we're transformed and wrecked by the truth of the gospel. And so the way that we come to grips with that is, is we ask ourselves questions like, how can I honor God with my marriage? How do I honor God with my singleness this week? And so I don't know what it looks like treating your body. I, I don't necessarily mean sexually unless there's something to address there. Maybe it's the, the way that you exercise or the way that you function. I, I don't know what the implications are but we have to leave this place considering that the text requires something from us. We also have the opportunity to draw close to God. And so this morning, we have a, a unique way that we want to offer some response to this text. And we're going to give you some space to respond, not only um, in a moment if you want to pray and kind of seal what it is that the Lord's speaking to you or take some notes or write something down. But as we go into a time of, of song this morning and, and respond to who God is and what he's done for us, we have the opportunity along your right on the side of the room there, there's a communion that's been prepared. And typically we don't take communion this way, but I wanted to provide opportunity for you to respond however you feel led. And what I mean by that is if you choose to, to leave this place and not partake in communion, that's okay. But if you want to start this new year um, just recommitting the covenant relationship that you've entered into. And scripture's clear that we take and partake communion to remember that which Christ has done. And so if you're here in this room and you're like, I'm not sure God's real, I'm not there yet, whatever, then you don't have to, nor should you take communion. But if you say, listen, I want to remember the fact that Jesus' body was broken on a timer and his blood was shed if you want to remember that and center your hearts and minds as we enter into 2019, we want to provide opportunity. So as we go into worship, you can feel free to go over and if you want as a family to take communion together over there, you certainly can. Um, if you want to take it back to your seat and take it together, uh, if you just want to take it individually, you can do whatever you want. Like I said, you don't have to take it. If you'd like prayer for something or if you want to actually have somebody administer communion, in other words, you want to get it and bring it up and we can direct communion, we can do that as well. Um, but we want to provide opportunity for response if you'd like that in a unique way. If you would just close your eyes and, and bow your heads as we kind of reflect on what it is that the Lord may be speaking to us. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, the, the worship team's gonna come up and, and get prepared to lead us in song. And as they do, I want you to consider what application looks like for you. Does application look like crossing the line of salvation? If it does, it's as simple as praying that prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? 
you forgive me? It starts that way. I'd love to have additional conversations with you so you can understand the decision that you've made if you pray that prayer in the the quietness of your own mind. But I'm not here to manipulate anybody or embarrass anyone or make them come up. It's a decision you can make in the quietness of your own heart and mind where you sit. For others of you, what does it look like to consider how you can honor God with your marriage, with your singleness this week? Quite honestly, I know that there's probably some people in the room that, that just don't like what it is that I said this morning. You just don't like it. Like, you don't like the implications in your life. It, I gotta tell you, I'm okay offending you with the gospel. If this is my opinion, then, then who cares? I'm just some ugly bald dude telling you what I think. But if I'm telling you what the word of God says, then I'm all right with, with you walking away saying, wait a second, so, so I have to respect him? He's such a jerk. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I have to love her? She's so unlovable. Do so I have to consider the way I treat my body seriously? It's my body. I don't know what the implications are for you this morning. But I know that God is faithful to lead and direct. So this morning with every head bowed and eyes closed, I just, I want to lead us in a prayer. Your heads are bowed just so that you're not distracted, so you're considering what it is that maybe the Lord might be asking you to do. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning We're so thankful for the picture of a covenant relationship that you display on the cross. Lord, we're transformed by that daily. The reality and the implications that we were loved while we were enemies of yours. That you laid down your life for us. For me. So Father, the This morning as we leave this place, I pray that you would show us ways that we can honor you. We can honor you through our marriage, that we can honor you through our singleness. That you would be glorified in our lives. That we would war against our selfish nature by being transformed by one who was selfless on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen.